life that you have given us. We ask for your strength and peace and wisdom to do your will with it. For that is the only one we are the most fulfilled. Thank you for this opportunity to fellowship with one another, encouraging one another in the truth of your strength and power over all things, including ourselves. You are our God and we are your people. We worship you together now. Amen.
Across this world, we gather for one purpose. This is the first time they have got the gifts ever in their lifetime. This is perfect. The gospel is being shared, shoe gift is being given up, and we believe this is making a great impact in the lives of these children. Every voice raised with the same message. I want to encourage you boys and girls, trust Jesus. And our hearts are united. People are motivated. They are ready to go to every child. For 20 years, Operation Christmas Child volunteers have traveled to the ends of the earth. We went through rivers, we went through very narrow roads, and it's worth every minute of it. To deliver a simple yet powerful gift. A gift carries a strong message. That is a gospel in action. Each box shares a message of love. They're not just shoe boxes. They're miracles. They're landing in people's hands that would never dream about it. Every gift points to the true meaning of Christmas, God's Son, Jesus Christ. This is a simple demonstration of God's love. Now, 100 million shoe boxes later, we are seeing lives changed. Gift boxes has opened door for gospel. This is the celebration. All nations, all tribes, this is the time to get ready. We want more and more and more of these boxes. Bring them in. This is the time to reach the next 100 million. Can we, can we do that? Can we reach 100 million? Amen, we will, and we will. And you know what? I'm going to invite somebody up right now. Doreen's going to come up and tell us just how we can start putting a dent in that 100 million shoe boxes. Doreen, here you go. Good morning. Okay, I'm here to talk about Operation Christmas Child. I want you to know it's not just a gift. It is so much more, and I'm so excited about it. It is so much more because when you plant, when you pack that box for that child, you have planted a seed for the entire community. We send the box over, and that's just a start. Okay, this gives the opportunity for the whole community to hear about Christ, which sometimes they wouldn't have ever learned about and never, never come to know. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and they wouldn't have come to know Christ if it wasn't for these uh, uh, shoe boxes that go over. And not only do they do that, it's a kickstart to a 12-week discipleship program that the kids go through. In turn, that their parents learn about, which brings in the whole community to learn about them. In a lot of these communities, after a few years, churches have been planted. And that's, that's, that's an amazing thing, that it starts with you packing that shoebox. You put in toys such as little stuffed animals, toothbrushes, um, Soccer balls deflated with a pump are just like an amazing toy there. Um, do that and you've planted a seed. You have helped share the word, okay? So I encourage you to get out there and do that. Pack a box, today's our turn-in date, one of them. We have the 15th, which is next week, and the 22nd is the last day. If you have any questions, just stop by the back and we'll answer all your questions. Thank you. Thanks for all your hard work, Doreen. And 
Uh, a couple of quick announcements we got. Don't forget the Wham Beast Feast uh, raffle is up and going again. And they got some super cool prizes. They have this really nice 45 uh, revolver there. You can go take a look at it. It's custom made. for. Uh, it's got Alaska written all over it. Also, Class 301 is right after the service today. So if you haven't signed up for that, it's still cool to go. At this time, it's time for all the kids to go to Kids Church. So head on out. For the rest of you, we're going to stay here and worship.
Christ alone. Amen. Welcome to Friends Church. I'm glad you're here. My name is Eric, I'm one of the pastors, if you're new. Um, we are in week two of our series on hope. Hope is the thing for November. Look at those bustling <laughs> biceps right there. <laughs> Ow! Um, sorry, it was distracting. Um, and yeah, so this week, man, I wrestled through this, this week with this uh, sermon uh, a lot. I didn't really know where to go because when it comes to hope, it's such a pivotal uh, foundation for the gospel. And I feel the weight as the person up here not to just make really poetic points and make us feel good, but to speak the truth of the word. You know, I don't feel, I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't find an identity in preaching at all. Like I could not do this ever again and be absolutely the same person. Um, but I feel a calling to do it. And with that comes the responsibility to speak truth. And so when I thought about this week and about hope, I was just like, man, God, like there's so much to cover. Where do we go, go in this series we know that in Alaska, especially in the holiday season, depression and, and suicide skyrockets, right? Uh, one of the prayers we had this morning with that would be that it, when, when we spent this month on hope, that it would break the chains of the enemy in this city. And what I really want us to do today is really look at the foundation of where our hope is as the church. And if you've never understood where true hope comes from, I hope you find it this morning. So I'm really tired. I went to bed at two and I woke up at three and rewrote most of my sermons. So 
But God is being my strength this morning. Uh, it's been a long day so far. I've been up for like 10 hours. Now, um, but it's good. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for what you faithfully did in the first service, God. Uh, what you're going to do this morning in this one. Lord, I thank you that your word goes beyond us, that it does not rely upon me, um, Lord, that your spirit speaks and it moves beyond our ability, so I pray that you would be my strength, that you would be heard this morning, uh, that whatever you want to come across to your people and the people who desperately need to know hope, uh, that it would be so. Lord, we thank you for all the people that this fellowship makes up. We thank you for every person that gives with their time and their money and their treasure and their gifts and everything, Lord, that people sow into. And God, I pray that as uh, we give this morning that you be glorified, that you further it for the purpose of your kingdom. God, and in this valley, in Jesus' name, amen. So, let's dive in. You know, last week I was at my house uh, with the boys and... My four-year-old bishop ran down the hallway and stubbed his toe on a chair in the kitchen. And the first words out of his mouth was, why does this hurt? And I looked at him and I was like, because you just kicked a wooden chair. (laughs) But he looked at me and he said, yeah, dad, but why does it hurt? Why? Why is there pain? It's like a profound thought for a four-year-old. And honestly, it kind of made me step back for a second and think, and I scooped him up in my arms, and I said, because life hurts sometimes, son. And it does. Life hurts sometimes, and we've all experienced it to one degree. I I think all of us know that something is wrong in the world, don't we? It's like we, we only live one life, but we don't need any outward perspectives to understand, even from the youngest of age, that something is not right. Um, all of us have had moments where we've stubbed our toe or where, when we've been forced to eat steamed lima beans uh, and thought to ourselves, something is just not right in this world. I don't know what it was about the 90s, but I felt like lima beans were at every meal in the 90s. It's like, I'm glad that era died. Um, it's, it's the, nightmares of my dreams but life is full of joys and it's full of struggles it's full of dealing with sickness and longing for friends and struggling with sin we've all felt that longing for things to be made right again one theologian writes that hope is the reach of our hearts for a cure it's the reach of our hearts toward what we think will fulfill us secure us save us, not just us, but the whole entire world. We all long for a cure. And I've been studying worldviews and philosophy this year in my school, um, and have met the realization over and over and over again that for centuries, philosophers and theologians and novelists and artists have wrestled to describe our human predicament and then pres- uh, prescribe a cure, or at least something that soothes the pain. When you get into the history of Western philosophy, you find the men like Socrates and uh, Plato and Aristotle and 
They're in this lively debate about life's highest aim. Why are we here? Why is anything here? And why are things amiss? How does one live a life of virtue? How does one find satisfaction and peace? And then you move to the A.D. era and you start to read about the church fathers. Arguably one of the most powerful thinkers among the fathers of of the Christian church is St. Augustine. Now he started out as the Neoplatonist following the works of Plato, but he, he, he found during his years of wrestling to search for this final target of human longing, which he called the summum bonum, which means supreme good. After wrestling through scriptures like Psalms 42, the, as a deer pant for the water, so my soul thirsts for you, God. And deeply moved by the turmoil of his own soul, Augustine finally reached the end of his search. He came to the conclusion... He begins his autobiographical work, Confessions, in 398 A.D. with this prayer. O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. After years of wrestling, Augustine realizes something that we all struggle with. Our longings are unfulfillable in this earth. Now, I've been reading a book for school by a guy named Cornelius Platanga Jr. That is the coolest name. It makes me just want to read all of his books. And what he writes about our longing is insightful. He says that the truth is, is that nothing in this world will finally satisfy us. Much can make us content for a time, but nothing can fill us to the brim. The reason is, is that our final joys lie behind the walls of the world. Beyond the walls of the world, as J.R.R. Tolkien put it. Ultimate beauty comes not from a lover or a landscape or a home, but only through them. These earthly things are solid goods and we naturally relish them, but they are not our final goods. They point to what is higher up and further back. And this is where Augustine lands. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God, and his thoughts are only solidified by what we find in the Word. Our true hope is found beyond the walls of this world. I think we all can feel this. I think we've all uh, had those moments when life just seemed to soar, where days uh, you wouldn't change anything. When you're sitting on the beach in Hawaii watching the sunset, or you're sitting in a cabin in the middle of winter laughing with family around a fire. But even in those moments of happiness, we all face this reality and fear that we can lose things in a minute. Last week, Lauren was at the church and I drove home before her and the roads were horrible. There's like three cars in the ditch on the ridge. So I text her what I always text her when that happens. I said, the roads are bad. Drive safe. Don't die. (laughs) Just being a thoughtful husband. But honestly, I... That's literally what I write her all the time. Um, I text her that, and I thought about it for a second. And I was like, man, like, if Lauren died right now, I have four boys in my house. <laughs> like, the realization just flooded into me where it's just like, oh, Lord. So I text her back, and I was like, no, seriously, don't die. <laughs> I will kill you if you die. 
right? <laughs> Life is a roller coaster of emotions. Every new day brings us fresh news of old evils, of nature ravaged, of people cheated, beaten, terrorized. Every day brings us news of people whose misery is almost impossible to fathom. And every day reminds us that this world has fallen. And I think we come to this point, all of us eventually, where we say this cannot be all that there is. What we see in the Word is that true hope is centered in the Gospel. What we see in the Word is that this world is not all that there is. We've talked a lot about the kingdom in the last few months. And uh, I love what George Eldon Ladd says concerning our hope. He says the gospel of the kingdom is an announcement of what God has done and will do. It is, his, it is his victory over his enemies. It is the good news that Christ is coming again to destroy forever his enemies. It is the gospel of hope. It is also the good news of what God has already done. He has already broken the power of death, defeated Satan, and overthrown the rules of sin. The gospel is one of promise, but also of experience. The promise is grounded in experience. What Christ has done guarantees what He will do. This is the gospel which we must take into all the world. And this hope is not only centered in Christ, it is assured for those who believe. And to see this, we don't go to the gospels. We actually go all the way back to the beginning of the Word. See, the Word of God is not a compilation of disconnected books. It's The Bible is 66 books telling one story. It begins in the garden in Genesis and it ends in a city in Revelations. In Genesis, it only takes three chapters from the world to go from perfection to total and utter chaos. Through the fall of man, creation is fractured and the intimacy of God and man is severed, leaving us in a state of despair and self-pursuit and desperate need of hope. Longing becomes displaced, and with it, hope becomes displaced, because what we long for is what we put our hope in. And when hope is displaced, hope is lost. But in the midst of the world that seems to be burning, God promises to make things right. And it starts immediately after the fall. In Genesis 3, when God hints at one to come, a man of promise who will come and crush the serpent. And then in Genesis 12, God begins to unfold how this man of promise will come. God promises in Genesis 12 to bless a man named Abraham and to make his name great. So that he will be a blessing. And ultimately God promises that through Abraham, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. That sounds like hope, if I ever heard it. In a time of the world when the fall has ravaged creation, God looks at us and he says, I will bless the nations. God promises to do this through Abraham, but there's an issue. Abraham has no children. And at this point, Abraham is around 100 years old. 
and Sarah, his wife, is barren. But hope, church, does not rely upon our circumstance. It relies upon God's promise. And in Romans 4, Paul tells us that in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised to do. And what we see in Genesis is that Sarah does give birth to the promised son. His name is Isaac. And Isaac held every hope now that the further promises of God would be fulfilled. And yet it was Isaac whom Abraham was commanded to offer up to God. All of the hope rests in this son. And God said, I want you to give me your son. I want you to put him on the altar. It was a test of faith. And uh, we know that Abraham was obedient in faith to not withhold his son. And in believing, it says in Hebrews 11, believing the fact that God could even raise him from the dead, Abraham brought his son to the altar. And in obedience, God saved Isaac. He saves his life. And Abraham receives a reaffirmation of the promises of God reinforced by an oath. In Genesis 22, 16 through 19, it says, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, in your seed, All the nations of the world shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now why is this important to us? Because we know through the word that this promise God made to Abraham set the trajectory of the whole entire Old Testament. That this promise begins to unfold the coming of a promised Messiah who would bring salvation to the whole world. And it doesn't end with Abraham and Isaac, but it goes to Isaac's son Jacob. And, it, and, it's, and it's told to come through the tribe of Judah. And it starts to outline where God is he's laying out this one that he has thought of from the beginning of time to bring and save humanity and crush the serpent. The author of the book of Hebrews saw this point and used it as an encouragement to hold fast to hope. For us to hold fast to hope. If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Hebrews 6. I love this verse. This passage will grow a beard on your face. So be ready. Seriously, this is the most manly passage. So ladies, I'm sorry you're going to have to shave after this. No. um, No shave November. So you have to wait to December. Surprise. Anyways, Hebrews 6.13. I love this passage. Listen to what 
the author of Hebrews says concerning the promise to Abraham. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Yeah. (laughs) Saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their dispute, an oath is final for confirmation. So God... So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone before us on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So why do we see God make a promise to Abraham and then double down the assurance of it with an oath? Well, the author of Hebrews says that God did this so that we would have a strong encouragement of our hope. What we see from the very beginning of the Bible is that God wants, to have a st- wants us to have a steadfast anchor for our hope. He makes a promise and doubles it with an oath that He would do what He said He would do no matter what. Do you see that? The God who cannot lie did not just end with making a promise to Abraham. He made a promise to Abraham and he says, and I swear an oath by myself that what I told you, what I've swore in a promise to you, I will carry out. Why? So that when we look at the faithfulness of God who swore promise and oath we would understand that he would do what he said he would do. That is so good. Thank you, Terry. We've looked at this many times that the promise of blessing given to Abraham works its way all the way from the, in the Old Testament to one person. And in the New Testament, Paul talks about the promises of Abraham in Galatians 3. And he says this in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, Paul says, referring to many. But referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. From the moment the world was burning, God set into motion a promise to bless all the families of the earth in the midst of hopelessness. And he would fulfill this by swearing promise and oath to send a Messiah to save the world. The whole entire Old Testament is a story of these promises unfolding and the faithfulness of God to be true to his word 
This is where their hope rested. The promises of God. We can read it all over the Psalms. You can feel it. This this longing for this to be fulfilled. Psalm 62.5 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. For my hope is in Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is my God. And in Psalms 119, over and over and over, the psalmist goes back to the Word. What's the Word he's talking about? The promise, sworn by God, promise, an oath, that He would do what He said He would do. And he says, Remember your word to your servant, which, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort and my affliction, that your promise gives me life. My hope longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. You are my hiding place and my refuge. I hope in your word. Uphold me according to your promise that I might live. And let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I might be safe. I rise before the dawn and I cry for help. My hope is in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. The longing for what God said he would do to come to fruition. And through all of it, we see that the prophets, when Israel is cast into exile and spread apart, the prophets spoke of this hope as well. Isaiah spoke of a day when God would reestablish His kingdom through a a new King David. And Ezekiel declares that God would send the promised Savior to rescue and renew His people. And Jeremiah speaks of a new covenant that God would make with His people in which their sins would be forgiven and they would know God personally. And all of creation groans to be set free. Through all of this, the people remember and held that God swore promise and oath to bring the offspring of Abraham. 2,000 years. 2,000 years of waiting and longing and hoping of prophecies unfolding. And an angel of the Lord makes an announcement in Matthew 1. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what God had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God swore, promise, and oath to do what he said he would do. And John the Baptist comes on the scene, starts declaring, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
For this is what was spoken from the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And Jesus, the son, is baptized by John. And the heavens open up and the spirit of God descends like a dove and it falls on him and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus walks into a synagogue on the Sabbath and instead of reading the scriptures of the day, he opens up the scroll to the prophet Isaiah written 700 years prior And he reads this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. And proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll and he gives it back to the attendant. And he sits down and all of the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I said this before in the sermon I gave on the sermon, uh, chosen race. But this is and will forever be my favorite drop the mic moment. I mean, seriously. He picks up the scroll, reads through it. By the way, this is fulfilled. You know, it's just like, that moment is insane. What the prophets always longed for. What their hopes and their words reached out to grab was now being fulfilled in Nazareth. What God had sworn in promise and oath to Abraham. He did for our assurance of hope. That we would have a steadfast anchor for our souls. God will do what he says he will do. And I love what happens through the gospel. Because Jesus starts to give a home. To all of the hopes of the Old Testament. This has been fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah's hope rests in Christ. And what we see through the scriptures and and through the gospels is that all of the prophets that longed to see, that hoped for a day, was finding a home in Jesus. Through the gospels we read of Jesus doing incredible things just just as the prophets have spoken. He gave sight to the blind. He gave healing to the leopards. He cast out demons. He made the deaf hear. But honestly, my favorite part of the gospel is probably the interaction between Jesus and his 12 closest friends. I mean, for centuries, God's people, for centuries, God's people have been waiting for the promised Messiah. And then these men are just in the front row seat, sitting around fires and seeing crazy things happen. I mean, in John 6, there's 5,000 people that need to be fed. And Jesus looks at uh, Philip and he's like, um, how are we going to do this, Philip? He already knows how he's going to do it. 
Philip's like tiling in his head. He's like, oh, I mean, it's going to be 200 denaries, denaries to even buy a scrap for all these people. And he's like doing his little calculating tablets on his iPhone. And, uh, and then Andrew looks over and he sees five loaves of bread and two fish. And he goes, there's a boy with five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus says, tell everybody to sit. And he starts to hand out the bread hand out the loaves, hand out the bread and hand out the loaves. And what we read in John is that all of the people were fed and they were left with 12 baskets of leftovers for each disciple. Can you imagine what the disciples must have been thinking? Is this the one? Is this the one that's been spoken of since days of old that would come to redeem us? And you see a telling picture of they're wrestling with this fact in Mark's 4.35. We read the story of Jesus and his disciples crossing the sea. A storm comes. And everybody's on the boat and Jesus is asleep on a cushion in the stern. And they wake him up. They're losing their minds. And they're like, teacher, do you not care that we're just about to die? <laughs> And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this man that even the winds and the sea obey? There is one of the 12 disciples to me that's a definition of desperate longing. It's Peter. Peter later would be known as the Apostle of Hope. I mean, you read second, first and second Peter, letters that I have been on in this church for months, probably my favorite letters in the Bible. It's all about hope. It's the foundation of his whole ministry. But before the cross, Peter is a wreck. Before Christ's death, Peter is a wreck. He does not understand what sets before him. In Luke twenty two thirty three, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, I tell you the truth, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. When Jesus is betrayed by Judas with a kiss in the garden, I think Peter was ready to die. I think Peter was ready to fight to the death for Jesus. I think he was a man that saw what stood before him and he couldn't reason this idea that it was about to slip away. So he did whatever any desperate person longing for hope does. He takes out a sword and he starts to fight and he cuts an ear off. One of the people that are trying to take Jesus away. But what does Jesus do? Puts his hand on the man's ear and heals it. And he looks at Peter and he says, stop. I think Peter was ready to die. I do not think Peter was ready to watch 
and do nothing as Jesus went to the cross. I think it was totally beyond him. But can you imagine? I mean, you're, you're living this life with the Messiah. You're, you, you've come to the realization. There's a point in John where he says, Who do you say I am, Peter? And he says, You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And now he's, he's watching as Jesus is just going to the slaughterhouse. And he says, Stop, Peter. The wrestling that man must have felt. The feeling that Peter must have been going through. What Jesus swore with a promise, what God swore with promise and oath, he would do. This was always the plan. Christ always, the plan was that Christ would die. We see it all the way through the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah. What we see in the beginning of Genesis is God begins to unfold a plan to save the world and there is a price to be paid because of our sin. What the world doesn't realize until Christ is that God was going to pay this price Himself. There is a huge transition that happens between the cross and resurrection. You want to know what hopelessness looks like? It looks like the Savior of the world being nailed to a cross and being buried in the grave. The day after the, the, the crucifixion, what those men that realized who he was must have been feeling. It says that they locked themselves away in a room because they were so afraid of the Jews and they didn't know what to think. The Messiah has died. That is hopelessness. But God swore. Promise an oath. You want to know what true hope looks like? It looks like the Savior of the world paying sin in full, defeating death, and walking out of the grave. Because the grave could not hold this king. Our hope is on a risen king. Our hope is on a risen king. I love the picture of John 20. This is the moment where the disciples realize that Jesus is alive. It says, in the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because of the fear of the Jews. Then Jesus came and he stood among them. It's funny that it says the doors were locked and Jesus came. So I don't think he knocked on the door. If you notice, when uh, they rolled the tomb away, he was already gone. He walks through the wall and he says, peace be with you. What a funny thing to say when you walk through a wall. I think Jesus had a serious sense of humor. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side so the disciples rejoiced because they had seen the Lord. And Jesus said to them, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 15. We looked at this last Easter. 
If Christ did not raise from the dead, our faith is worthless as Christians. We are still in our sin. Everybody who's come before us has perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life alone, we are the most to be pitied on the face of the earth. That's literally what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. But our hopes rest beyond the walls of this world. And they stretch out to eternity. True hope takes a man hiding in a locked room. Takes Peter, who has denied his Savior three times because he doesn't know how to grasp the reality of what God is doing. He's hiding away in a locked room. And it gives him something to rest his life on. Within 40 days, this man, Peter, is standing before a crowd of witnesses at Antioch. And he proclaims with boldness that the salvation of the Lord has come to the world. There is a huge transition that takes place between the cross and the resurrection. Namely, hope has a foundation No longer is it just based in promises. No longer is it looking out to say, one day it will happen. Hope has a home. And with boldness, Peter realizes he is the Messiah. Everything that's been said about the prophets is true. Therefore, I stand on the confidence of his word. And I look towards a world that's broken. And I say, salvation has come to all who believe. Repent. That's what true hope does. It looks beyond our our reality, our situation, and it goes into a world that is broken, and it dreams. It's a hope with a wingspan that soars above all things. God swore, promised an oath to do what He said He would do. And his promises are are for us. He swore promise and oath. And he assured his promise in sending his son. And he sealed his promise in giving us his spirit. And he calls us to long for his return. Because our hope rests now in Christ. But he is coming home. And he's going to bring us all with him. This world is going to fall away, church. And I'm glad about that. Eternity. We have a bowl of soup. We have eternity. Christ is not just the revelation of what God has done, but the assurance of what God will do. The prophets in the Old Testament did not only speak about the first coming of the Christ. In fact, they speak more about His second coming. We have a lot to hold to when we look at these words. The prophet Isaiah, his words were assured and and confirmed in that Christ came. Which means that the words of His second coming are assured and confirmed in that Christ came. So what does he say? What does the prophet Joel say? I love this. They dreamed of a new age in which the wilderness would bloom and the mountains would drip with wine. 
They dreamed of a time when people would convert weapons of war into tools for harvest. A time when children would play with the lions. In, in, in this coming time, God would rejoice in His creation all over again. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. Secure in the fact that no one would steal their house and their vineyard. A day when God's people would minister justice in the earth. And all of the earth would be full of the knowledge of God. That promise is assured to us because God swore it. Promise and oath. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And I love the way that Paul frames hope in the Bible because... He says in 1 Corinthians 13, he says the greatest of these is faith, hope, and love. Hope is always sandwiched between faith and love. You have to understand who God is to find true hope. You have to look at the promises of God and put your whole being into the reality that He has promised us to redeem this world. And when you're there, the longer are you wrestling with, am I saved? What, what do I need for myself? And we have this inward focus of looking at us and everything that we need and everything that we want. Faith calls us to pour our lives out for the sake of knowing that God has already given us eternity. And faith births in us hope. A hope with wings that looks into a dying world and like Peter standing at Pentecost says, God has brought salvation unto this world. Repent and believe. What are we dreaming for, church? What are we longing for? Hope is the thing that projects us into looking at different nations around the world and pouring ourselves out for people we've never met because it's bookmarked between faith and love. Love. We need faith in the resurrected Christ, the Savior of the nations. But we also need love. Love gets us out of our shell. It lifts our interest not only towards Christ, but towards others. Faith, hope, and love. God has called us to dream big so that the Spirit of God may blow on our dreams and make them alive. I love what Cornelius Platinga Jr. says in his book. I'm just going to say his full name every time. He says, faith without works is dead, but the same goes for hope. Without costly action, hope can soften into sentimentality. But with costly action, hope may harden into our reality. God has called us to dream, church. I was talking to Floyd this week, and we both came to the conclusion, just so you're all aware, that in five years from now, we do not want to be where we're at in this church. I do not want, from five years from now, me just saying the same things, us just sitting in the same place, and doing the same things, and wrestling with the same things, and nothing about our lives being different. What is the point? We're a social club at that point. We are a church that exists 
for the transformation of God. That we would be transformed into His image and carry that hope into this world. If you have never... If you have never felt hope, let me tell you something. Hope is not found in this world. Today I would invite you, if you have never held the promises of God from the beginning of creation, God swore promise and oath that he would do what he set out to do. And he has been calling your name this whole time. Because when he says, I will bring blessing to all the nations, your name is in that. This morning, if you have never felt true hope, I would invite you to call upon the name of the Lord to put your trust in something more than what you can hold in your hands. And to hold on to hope. If you're a believer this morning, hope is not an ethereal feeling that we go to when we want to feel good about ourselves or wishful thinking. It's the foundation of our call. Hope is alive in me. It's the foundation of me, but it does not, it cannot be contained within me. The Spirit of God flows out from me because it has to. It gives me a wingspan. So I would say to you, church, what are you longing for? Because what you long for is what you put your hope in. Are you longing for the kingdom of God to come? Are you longing for the redemption of the world? Are you longing to see the brokenness in people's lives come into freedom? Are you longing to be part of God's call? Because that's what hope is about. We need to dream like Martin Luther King Jr. He didn't stand in Washington, D.C. and say, I have a preference. He said, I have a dream. He stood on the reality of the spirit within him to speak truth against the world and see change. That's what he's called us to, church. I've never, never, since I've ever preached at this church, felt more of a conviction that we need to wake up than right now. If it takes me getting an hour of sleep to feel what I'm feeling right now in this church, it's worth it. We have to wrestle towards this hope. It has to be our aim. Let us not be the same church five years from now. And let us long to see what God can do when we put our trust in His assured promises promise and oath he gives to us and he is faithful prayer team if you want to come forward if you have never put your faith in Christ Christ said if you deny me in front of men 
I will deny you. But if you confess me in front of men, you repent of your sin, you will be saved. Today, you don't know, I don't know, I'm, I'm gonna, I could die in this podium right now. You have breath in your mouth, which means you can still hope. Maybe today is the day that you hold on to what you've been longing for, which is God himself. If you've never confessed Christ, I would offer you and invite you to come forward and pray with somebody. Jesus said, repent and believe and you will be saved. Repent and believe and you will be saved. He's assured it. Promise and oath. Let's stand together and worship our Lord. Thank you.